Well, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, if you will. Jeremiah 31. Our time this evening, we'll just be looking at uh, Jeremiah 31. Last week, we looked at the covenant made with David, some of the various passages where, of course, the covenant is made in 2 Samuel 7, some of the other passages that speak of the Davidic covenant and expand upon and explain uh, some of the promises that are given to David and some of the things that would come about through the fulfillment of the uh, Davidic covenant. And we saw as well that it, it sort of reaches a, a climax in Psalm 72 where, in essence, all of the, the things that had come before, uh, the covenant of creation with Noah, renewed it with, with Noah, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the blessings of the Mosaic covenant, all of these things sort of come together uh, with the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant. We come uh, this evening to uh, look at the new covenant, which uh, we won't get into uh, that much tonight. We will look at in, uh, in, in the coming weeks, but uh, basically the fulfillment of the new covenant will also bring about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which will also bring about the fulfillment that the Davidic covenant had, uh, all of the fulfillments the Davidic covenant had promised uh, to, to, to bring about per Psalm 72, um, particularly when we get to uh, Jeremiah 33, for example, and uh, part of the promises of the new covenant involves the coming of the branch of David, uh, his offspring, uh, who's going to have this kingdom, which never ends. That's also part of the new covenant. Uh, but we will look at that um, also in, in the coming weeks, but um, I want to focus our attention specifically uh, tonight at, at Jeremiah 31. Now, the, uh, the new covenant, of course, is, is promised all over the place in the Old Testament. Uh, it doesn't just pop out of nowhere. So that when Jesus is eating with his disciples and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, uh, they, they know what he's talking about. They, they may not have you know, the, the, the complete picture. They, they certainly struggled for a time to put all of the pieces together. But they have an understanding of that language. They know what Jesus means, what he's talking about when he speaks of the new covenant that it's being inaugurated now with his blood. They've heard this language before, and of course where they've heard it from is the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, the New Covenant actually has several different names. It's not always referred to as the New Covenant. In fact, I think this is the only place Jeremiah 31, where it's specifically called the New uh, Covenant. Uh, 
But we also find that God refers to this future covenant that He's going to make with His people. It's called the Everlasting Covenant. And it's called the Covenant of Peace. And then, of course, the New Covenant. Then there are also places that don't mention the covenant exactly or the word covenant, but they do describe the kinds of things that will characterize the days of living under the new covenant. They describe the new covenant without using the actual phrase or the words new covenant. And of course, we've seen this before. We've seen that a covenant can be described without the actual presence of the language of covenant being explicitly used. Uh, Just last week, for example, when we looked at the Davidic covenant, we saw that when that covenant was made with David in 2 Samuel 7, there's no mention of covenant. There's no word covenant that's found there. What we find is that God is making all kinds of promises uh, to David, things that he's going to do and accomplish through David's offspring. But the word covenant is not found there explicitly. It's only in later passages where uh, upon reflection of 2 Samuel uh, 7, both by David and other authors, that it's referred to explicitly uh, as a covenant. And so a covenant can be present, of course, without the word covenant. And, And we also find passages like that throughout the Old Testament where there are promises that speak of things that will come in the days of the new covenant without mentioning the covenant specifically. And uh, we'll look at some of those passages uh, as well the more we sort of unpack uh, the new covenant. Uh, But tonight I want to look at just one passage from the Old Testament that speaks explicitly of this new covenant to come. And uh, of course, there's, there's many more, but we're just going to look at uh, some of the other ones in weeks to come and focus on Jeremiah 31 tonight. So uh, the, the passage uh, in mind uh, explicitly is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which is where that, that new covenant is explicitly stated. And, and of course, it's, it's helpful to have some understanding of some of the things that are going on in the book of Jeremiah, the context that's leading up to this promise that's made. Of course, most of the book of Jeremiah is a very dark book. There's lots of judgment. And that makes sense because Jeremiah is living in the days that are leading up to the curses of the law coming upon the people of Judah. The Babylonians are coming. And he's he's warning. He's sent as a messenger to warn them that this is happening, it's not going to change. God has determined to bring the curses of the law upon the people now. So there's certainly, there's a lot of lament, there's a lot of woe, and the reason is because even within Jeremiah's own life, exile is going to be the experience of uh, the the people of Judah. And of course, uh, as Jeremiah preaches that message, it's, um, well, it's not a message that people like to hear. Uh, you, 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 would, you would rather hear of, uh, you know, promises and blessings and good things to come for the people of, 
of Judah. And of course, most people, that's, that's what they tend to want to hear, all good messages. I'm, uh, I even saw the other day, we have a, a local pastor in town that likes to post their uh, sermon notes, and I was, I was reading over some of them, and, and he was just like, coming right out and saying, you, you know, when, when I preach, I really like to give you guys an uplifting message. I really can't do it today, but I really, like, that's, that's what we come to. That, that's why we come to church, to get an uplifting message. Come on. You preach the whole counsel, okay? And sometimes you get passages of blessings. Sometimes you get passages of curses. You've got to preach them all. You, you can't come with a specific intention to have an uplifting message. You preach the word. Well, Jeremiah was a, a man who was called by the Lord to, to preach the word of God, what, what God tells him to say. And much of it was words of judgment. And so it gets him in trouble. He's, he's imprisoned. Um, he's dragged to Egypt. I mean, his life is not an easy one. So most of the book of Jeremiah is like that. It's prophesying of this judgment to come. It's describing when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, But in the immediate context of Jeremiah 31, basically from chapter 30 to 33, you you have some good news. Judgment's not going to be the last and final word for the people of Judah. God makes promises here of restoration to come in the future. Judgment is coming, but after the judgment will come great days of of restoration and promises to be fulfilled. We read beginning in uh, chapter 30 uh, that, that days will come where foreigners will no longer make the people of Judah God's people, slaves. This is in chapter 30, verse 8. Foreigners will no longer make the people slaves. And of course, it it could be tempting to to think that this has some sort of uh, fulfillment after the exile. You know, they're back in the land at that point. And I think a lot of times people kind of fall into the error of reading a lot of the promises that God makes when he talks about bringing them uh, back into the land, and, and, and that's sort of read as having its, its ultimate fulfillment in the, the return from, from Babylon. The only problem is the people of Israel didn't see it that way. Uh, Nehemiah, for example, in chapter 9, verse 36, where they're People are repenting of their sins. They say explicitly that they are slaves to this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy. So even though after the exile they come back into the land, it's not their land. They still see themselves as slaves. They're they're still looking ahead to these promises being fulfilled. And so one of the promises is that a day will come when they will not be slaves anymore from foreign nations. A day will come in Jeremiah 30, verse 9, where they will serve both God and David, their king. The king will come. The Messiah will be present. 
and they will serve Him. A day is coming, chapter 30, verse 16, where all of their foes will be destroyed. There will be no more enemies. It will be a a kind of judgment that is far greater and more complete than what happened when the Israelites came into the promised land after their wanderings in the wilderness. You remember they they come into the promised land and they're given victory over many nations, but they do not defeat all of them. They, They allow some of them to continue on living in the land and and those very nations would continue to be a thorn in their side. So a more complete victory over all of their enemies is, is promised to come. In chapter 31, verse 30, they're given a promise that everyone shall die for his own iniquity. A ju- judgment will come for your own iniquity. You won't suffer as a consequence for someone else's sin. This, of course, raises the question, you know, how will this be? How how does something like that, how's that going to come about? Because, of course, under the old covenant, you could be punished for the sins of others. I mean, you could think, for example, of someone like Daniel. Daniel is a righteous man. He's a prophet of God. He's not without sin, no doubt, but but he's a righteous and blameless man, and yet where is he? He's in a foreign land. He's currently living in the midst of and under the curses of the Mosaic law as they have come upon the entire nation of of Israel. He's living under curse. You could say the same thing about Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of the others among Israel who were part of the righteous remnant of the people of God. They suffered under the curses of the law for iniquity that was not their own. It was the iniquity of their fathers. And yet Jeremiah prophesies of a day when everyone will die for his own iniquity. In other words, they're not going to be held accountable. Uh, They're not going to suffer the covenant consequences of other people's iniquity. Something is going to change specifically in how God is going to relate to His people covenantally. And this very promise itself is what then leads to the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. So let's let's read that passage together. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this is the the promise that he makes through Jeremiah, that this new covenant that is said to come, this, this new covenant, this change in their relationship is what is going to bring about a situation in which you're not held accountable for other people's sins, for the sins of your father. But it comes with, with all of these various promises that are, that are outlined here. First, we see that, of course, it will be new. This covenant will be new, which also means that it will be different. That much is actually made clear by verse 32. Jeremiah, the Lord through Jeremiah says there, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's not going to be a renewal of the old covenant. It's not going to be like Deuteronomy. The covenant made in the plains of Moab. A covenant to keep the covenant that still has the same character as the Sinai covenant. It will be altogether different. But the question, of course, is how? What's going to be different about it? This leads to a second promise that we find here. It will be a covenant that is internal to a person rather than external, rather than being on tablets of stone that are housed somewhere else. It's going to be internal. You see this in verse 33. Look with me again there. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. That's... The point that is made by this imagery, that it's going to be internal. God, through Jeremiah, is, of course, speaking of things to come. And He's speaking of these things to come in very familiar images of things from the past. This is something that prophets do all throughout their writings when whenever they're speaking about the future. And specifically, in this case, the image of the ark and the image of the covenant is being used. You can think that when the the Mosaic covenant was made, of course, it was was made at a time where there was also uh, commandments given for a tabernacle to be erected. And the Ark of the Covenant was then to be placed inside this tabernacle. And within the Ark itself was then placed the testimony, the the written covenant, specifically the, the two tablets of stone. God 
had His law placed within the ark, housed in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. But here, in Jeremiah 31, the the image is modified. In this new covenant, there is an implied ark. The ark of the covenant will be there. There is an ark in which the law covenant will be placed. But the question is, what is that ark? And the answer is, it's God's people. God's people become that ark. Of course, it's not a literal ark then, is it? This This is an image. God's people will be the ark. And He will place His covenant. He will place His law within that ark. Within His very own people. And then, moreover, the image shifts in the next clause. And we see that unlike with the Mosaic Covenant, where God wrote it on tablets of stone, the New Covenant will be written on the heart. And so the covenant is placed in the heart, and it's written on the heart. So so I want you to recognize here that there there are a variety of images that are all being brought together in this this verse. You have the image of Exodus chapter 40, verse 20, where the covenant is placed within the ark. And then you have the image of Exodus 31, verse 18, where God wrote the law on tablets of stone. And you have both of these events, both of these images being fused together to paint this picture of the reality that is to come with the new covenant, which is the fact that the covenant will be a covenant of the heart. The new covenant will do what the old covenant said it did not do. Namely, circumcise the heart. Give the people a heart to believe and to obey. Now, I think that this this particular imagery also contributes to, or at least provides, some of the foundations for how and why the New Testament speaks of the church, speaks of the people of God as being the temple of the Lord. This is one of those passages that sort of contributes to to why that is a justified fulfillment. What is it that gives the New Testament authors the textual warrant for saying that the temple of God is no longer a physical building in Jerusalem, but is rather the church, the people of God? That's a key question. It's one thing to say because Jesus said that He's the temple. And and then we being united to Him, we're, we're part of that temple. But we have to have textual warrant for that from the Old Testament. 
You have to remember that when, when Paul was going around, he's preaching the gospel, he's, he's going to the Jews first. Where does he go? He goes into the synagogues and he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the one who would fulfill their Scriptures. He's reasoning from the texts of the Old Testament to demonstrate all of the various claims of Christians and the Gospel. So if one of the claims is that the temple, physical temple, is not going to be erected again, the temple is actually a living temple made up of living stones. What is the textual warrant for saying things like that? What is the, the, the reason why even a Jew reading the Old Testament should not expect a physical temple to be rebuilt? That there's going to be some, some new sort of fulfillment of this. And I think this, this Jeremiah 31 passage, as well as some others, contributes to this sort of textual foundation for this idea of the people of God being the very temple itself. And of course, you'll, you'll remember this is what Paul says, just to remind you, Paul Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, he says that the church is the household of God. That the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He says that it grows into a holy temple and a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So how can he say this? What's the, what's the warrant for it? I think one of the warrants is, again, what we see here in Jeremiah 31. In the New Covenant, God's people will be the Ark of the Covenant. God's people will be walking tablets of stone. They will be, as it were, central features of the tabernacle of the Lord. And I think interestingly enough, when you come to another passage, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, which is another passage, another verse that speaks of the new covenant, that temple language continues. Only there, the idea is that everyone will be consecrated to serve as Levites. God says, in verse 25 of that chapter, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. That's what the Levites had to do before they could minister in the tabernacle. They had to be cleansed. And one of the ways that they were cleansed, per Numbers 8, verse 7, was by the sprinkling of the waters of purification Likewise, if you had come into contact with a dead body, you had become unclean in that way. You had to be sprinkled with, with clean water. But I think that the main image there is sort of that, that Levitical consecration to serve in the temple. Ezekiel promises a day when, when God's people will be sprinkled with clean water, implying that 
They're going to be like Levites who can minister within the tabernacle. And so in the new covenant, God's people will be the ark. God's people will be living tablets of stone. God's people will be cleansed Levites. Texts and ideas like these are what ground the claims of the New Testament when it says that the New Covenant people of God have become the temple. Okay, so so the New Covenant will be an inward covenant. It's a covenant of the heart. And uh, we can't look at this in much detail, but I want to just add another text as well, sort of fill our minds with some of the things that are going on here. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. This, this, this is a text that refers to the new covenant as an everlasting covenant also. And it says there that God will put the fear of me in their hearts. The fear of God was, was something, of course, the old covenant people largely did not have, but under the new covenant, they will have it. They will fear God from the heart. Right? So, so primarily, this, this new covenant is a, a heart covenant in which God's people become the central features of God's tabernacle, of, of His ark. But then we also have uh, other promises. Here's another promise that we find at the end of verse 33. We, we find there that God says that He will be their God and they shall be His people. Uh, this phrase, the, the sentence here, is actually what's called a covenant formula. It's, it's basically a statement that describes the covenant relationship. Or, or it's a shorthand way of referring just to the covenant in general. Uh, sometimes you can find the whole statement in various verses. Sometimes you just find... Uh, one part of it, like you will be my people, without the God will be, you know, I will be their, their God. But, but whenever you find it, it it's, it's a sh- sort of a shorthand way of referring to the covenant and, and, uh, and, and the relationship that's established by the covenant and by any covenant. You find the same language in, in um, uh, Genesis 17 as well um, to, to, to speak of the uh, covenant of circumcision. But, but another example of this, uh, when Ruth, uh, Ruth determines to stay with Naomi, and she says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, your people shall be my people, and your, your God will be my God. This is really just another way of saying, I'm going to enter into the covenant. I'm going to become part of the covenant people of God. I'm going to submit myself to the law. I'm going to become part of Israel. And so God here in Jeremiah is promising that He's going to establish a covenant relationship with His people, and of course that relationship is going to be a new one. Then we find also another promise. Everyone, we're told, Everyone in the covenant will know God. This is at the beginning of verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, 
know the Lord, for they shall all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. What does that mean? Again, one of the things that's being contrasted is the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And of course, under the Old Covenant, you could be a member of the Old Covenant and not know God. That was the story of the vast majority of the people of Israel. As a nation, they're in covenant with God, but most of them are worshiping Baal, worshiping Moloch, are living like the rest of the nations and are incurring judgment upon themselves. They don't actually know God. And so if you were, say, for example, part of the righteous remnant, right? If you you were a prophet, what would you have to say? You would have to say to the very people who are in the covenant and who do not know God, know the Lord. And what does that language mean? Know the Lord. We we, we saw it a little bit uh, this morning in in Sunday school, right? But it it speaks of a, a personal, intimate relationship. Um, it, it can get you know very intimate, even in terms of um, sexual, when, when it's describing the relationship between Adam and Eve and, and the, the producing of offspring. You know, Adam knew Eve, right? It's a very intimate kind of language. You have a relationship with this person. So, so the idea is most people under the Old Covenant had no relationship with God whatsoever. And, and again, you could be a prophet and you could have to say to people who are covenant people of God, know the Lord. And what God is promising through Jeremiah is that that's not going to be the case in the new covenant. There will be no one who's in the new covenant who does not know the Lord. They shall all know Me, He says. This is... This is, one of those, this is one of those points that really separates right, a, a, a Baptist, particularly a Baptist understanding of the Gospel from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who are you know, sprinkling their babies. Right? They, they have an idea that you could be part of the new covenant. You're, you're covenant children. You're part of a covenant family and you, you still need to know the Lord. That's sort of flattening out the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. But what do we see? What does the text say? There is no such thing as someone who is in the New Covenant and who does not know the Lord. Which also leads, lastly, to this this final promise that we uh, see here, which is the forgiveness of sin. Knowing the Lord also means that your sins have been forgiven. This is also key in, in understanding whether or not someone can be you know, like a covenant child or something like that. To be part of the new covenant means that your sins have been forgiven. God promises here that in essence, He's going to do a work that deals with their iniquity. The law wasn't doing it. Year after year, they're offering sacrifices. 
Sometimes they're doing it with a, the, with a heart that's devoted to the Lord. Sometimes they're not doing it with a heart devoted to the Lord. But in all cases, the blood of animals is not cleansing them. It, it's, it's not washing their sins away. It's, it's maybe making them ceremonially clean so that God can dwell in their midst through the tabernacle. But their sins have not been dealt with. Their conscience has not been dealt with. It's one of the arguments that the author of Hebrews makes, right? That the, the blood of animals cannot cleanse the conscience. And this is one of the things that God says will happen in the new covenant. He will do a work that deals with their iniquity. Their, iniqui- their iniquity will be forgiven, and he will remember their sin no more. And so, of course, when, when Jesus, who, who brings about the fulfillment of this new covenant, when he's, when he's eating with his disciples at the Last Supper, and, and he, he says to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? He's, he's not only saying that he's, he's inaugurating this new covenant, but he's, he's saying that the promises of the new covenant are now coming through His very own blood. It is His blood that is able to secure this very promise of Jeremiah 31, of the forgiveness of sins. And so so when we hear that language, when we we repeat it uh, every Lord's Day, of course we reflect and we think about it about many things, right? We think about what what Jesus has done, we think about things that are to come, but we can think, we can meditate all the way back to the days of Jeremiah. When Jesus inaugurates that new covenant, he is bringing about the fulfillment of these very promises. And if Jesus' blood cleanses you of your sin, if you place your trust in him, if you receive his righteousness, you are now a part of the new covenant and you are considered one who knows the Lord and God is your God and you are His people. There's, of course, there's, there's much more that, that, that we could uh, say here. Uh, you, know, you turn over uh, Jeremiah 33, for example. This is still talking about the days of, of the new covenant to come and, and, and we'll see just sort of as a a little foretaste, but in those days, verse 15, in those days at that time, uh, the, the Lord says, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Right? This, is, this is speaking of Jesus here. He's that, that branch of David. He's the one who brings about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as well as the, the new covenant and the promises that, that come with it. So as I said, there, we'll, we'll look at um, other passages. We'll certainly look at Ezekiel 36 and some others in uh, the book of Isaiah. But I'm going to stop here uh, this evening and just open it up, see if there's any questions about uh, this passage. Or, or... <laughs> that one went up.